the BBXX podcast, Let's Get Intimate. I'm your host, Sasha Laurie, and we're here to challenge the way our culture has conditioned us to talk about sexuality, intimacy, and healthy relationships. To question everything, to embark on a journey of self-understanding, and to begin to rewire some of the backwards thinking that we've absorbed from the subconscious influences that have shaped us all. Our hope for you, and for myself, and for all of us here at BBXX, who are here with you on this journey every day, is that through a better understanding of our own identity, of who we are, and why we are that way, we can form deeper connections with other people and live healthier, more fulfilling relationships as a result. Join us as we change the conversation and the culture surrounding intimacy and relationships. And remember that better relationships equals a better life. In today's interview with Elizabeth Reed, we discuss the media's influence for better and for worse on LGBTQ identity and cultural interpretations. Elizabeth Reed is a cultural sociologist and lecturer at Goldsmiths University in London, whose research focuses on LGBTQ relationships and families, contemporary childhood, and the role of media and cultural representations in identity making. Thank you so much for joining us today, Lizzie. Thank you for having me. For this one, I actually wanted to start with a quote that I came across in your thesis that says, Managing negotiations of representation and the articulation of new and emerging identities as families, lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, and queer, LGBTQ, parents, are located at the intersection of politics and culture society, and family. And so I just wanted to kind of open with that um, and then bring you to the question, you know, how is it that you ended up researching where you're at today? And you can elaborate on that and kind of at, at this conclusion. Yeah. So I think that passage in particular is trying to capture the idea that whatever we do, wherever we are, what's happening is political in some way and that we can't exist outside of culture, we don't exist outside of all the different values that we share in society. Um, and, and I think often we reflect on families as this private space which happens behind closed doors, which get formed around in particular romantic relationships between adults. Um, and I really wanted to draw attention to, and a lot of my work is focused on this, that there is no separation between what happens politically, what happens socially, the values we all share and what we might make together as families and in our relationships. In terms of how I arrived here, um, I came out when I was 15, um, repeatedly. I think that's a fun sort of reflection to have that I think we often hear about coming out stories as a, and one day I came out and that was done. That wasn't my experience and it's not the experience of many people. For many, many people, we come out again and again and again through our lives and at different times and sometimes with different identities as well as we move through our lives in three different relationships. Um, and that changed the way I had relationships with my family, but it also changed the types of relationships I was in. Um, and as I went through my kind of academic training um, as an undergraduate and then as a postgraduate, 
I became more and more interested in some of the theories and ways of thinking about sexuality which were coming out of critical theory. Um, and that doesn't just extend to what are identities, what does it mean to be bisexual, what does it mean to be gay? But it was also um, looking at this new exciting field which was kind of exploding everywhere of queer theory. And queer theory is all about not just thinking about sexualities which aren't heterosexual, but thinking about what it means to be labelled as deviant, what it means to be labelled as normal or natural, and trying to understand the relationship between those two things. And I was really interested in the idea that the word queer itself, as a label given to people, thrust upon people, but also claimed by people, um, could be something which we use critically to say, what does it mean to queer this? What does it mean to do things differently? What does it mean to upset things, to set things in motion in different directions? What does it mean to interrupt the normal way of doing things and go somewhere else? So it's this kind of entanglement of my experiences, having the sense of maybe being out of place, having a sense of, well, the way I've been told that you do relationships is not going to apply to me because at the very basic level, I'm not probably going to be in a heterosexual relationship so it's going to look different how can I find how to do this and then on the other hand what I was reading what I was learning about was looking at why why is that this normal what does it mean to have a normal position what does it have mean to be in a heterosexual relationship as compared to all the different types of relationships that get labeled in different ways so it was this back and forth between my own experience and a critical intellectual interest in different ways of thinking about things and reflecting on society and culture I loved that part that you said we can't exist outside of culture. And so kind of while I think culture limits us so much and puts us into these kind of pockets or titles or labels, but at the same time, we're so dependent on it in seeking our identity, even though it can be such an unhealthy relationship and so misleading in so many ways. So that kind of mixed catch-22 dependency is so interesting. Yeah, I think so. And I think I wrote down when I was thinking about kind of key quotes that I love that really kind of clarify things. Um, and there's this idea that um, we, again, that we can't exist outside of representation, but that representation and the culture, the, the representations available through culture and in culture are what make saying possible. Um, and that's from Richard Dyer. He says that um, representation forms and deforms all expression. Everything we can say or might say comes through that kind of lexicon of ideas and images and values that we share and see in culture. And without that, we can't say anything about ourselves. But the way in which we might be able to talk about ourselves is also entirely structured by what's available there. You also mentioned the idea of repeatedly coming out, mm. which is definitely something that um, I've heard people talk to a lot. And so I'd love for you to kind of elaborate on that because I think for people who haven't experienced that firsthand, um, it is one of those things where it's easy to think, oh, you know, this one day or, you know, one conversation or even through just one conversation with each person. But it's um, this kind of continual process, and as you mentioned, things are kind of evolving and people are changing. As anyone, regardless of the label they identify with, we evolve in our preferences and partners in, in all kinds of ways and in our relationship with ourselves as well. So I'd love for you to kind of 
expand on that repeated idea for for other people who haven't experienced it themselves absolutely i think the number one person and number one reason i came out so many times is because my mum didn't believe me um and i think not being believed is a really common experience to lgbtq people generally um and we see it a lot currently in a lot of the debates about trans people's right to exist the idea that trans children simply can't know who they are um, and aren't believed and that's echoed across lots of different identities the idea that if you're saying i'm not heterosexual you must have got it wrong um because that's that's the obvious place you would be the expectation is you've started off heterosexual and you have to prove that you've moved somewhere else rather than an understanding of sexuality and gender identity which says we all start off somewhere along a spectrum and find a way to a certain kind of identity that makes sense for us and that repeated coming out is often i think about um articulating a legitimacy so my identity is real but it's also partly an identity I've chosen, partly an identity which has been thrust upon me, and partly an identity which isn't going away. And I think that can be really difficult. Um, In my research, for example, on bisexual people and their relationships, I found that lots and lots of bisexual people found that the moment they were in a relationship, the fact they'd repeatedly told people they were bisexual was ignored. If a woman... A bisexual woman was in a relationship with a woman everyone assumed she was now a lesbian if a bisexual woman was in a relationship with a man everyone assumed she was now a straight um and there was a lot of struggle for bisexual people generally and this is repeated in lots of different research the idea that you stop being bisexual the moment you're in a relationship because your partner's gender suddenly determines your entire identity as though your sexuality is only has meaning according to who you're with and the types of relationship you're having. Um, and that was my experience trying to tell people, and my mother in particular, <laughs> um, that I was bisexual. And later I started using the word queer instead to describe my sexuality. And that's what I was kind of pointing to when I was saying that you come out repeatedly, not just because people might not believe you, not just because people find it hard to imagine that you're rejecting what they see as a safe and obvious choice but also because maybe your political allegiances change, maybe your reflections on what it means to claim an identity change. Um, For me, different appreciations of gender and how I thought about myself meant that queer became a better choice for me than bisexual. And that, again, is something which kind of folds back on itself to have people say, well, you couldn't really have ever been bisexual because you've changed your mind. And this becomes really difficult for lots of people in relationships because over the course of their relationship, their sense of identity, their choices they're using about the words for themselves may change, but it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with that relationship. It doesn't necessarily have to do with settling on a particular um, binary uh, sexuality label, for example. And it seems like that label of queer has kind of, as in all enveloping kind of term enabled for that kind of more freedom in people's expression and the flexibility. Um, I was referring to a friend recently who I think is still going through a phase of kind of discovering their own sexuality and different partners, but is currently dating a woman. Um, But it's the first woman she's dated. And so I found myself also not wanting to kind of restrict this person to a label either. And so I think said something like currently who's currently dating a woman 
because I did find that especially you know how can I go putting those labels on people when I think even they themselves might feel restricted by them and so I think that queer which used to kind of have a negative context went through this kind of renaissance Mm -hmm. in some way Um, and so if you have any kind of insight into that I'd love to hear kind of how that that term kind of was able to take back a meaning yeah I think um, queer was initially and I think it's really interesting to think about the way the word has changed and the ways it's been used so queer used to predominantly be used to describe strangeness he's a bit odd he's a bit queer Um, and then that strangeness became a byword for being gay for being homosexual that it was it was strange to be gay so he was a queer and it's this evolution of that meaning into something else so it became a pejorative around that and the reclaiming of it is about reclaiming it not just to say I am gay but also to say I'm strange it's a it's that a kind of grasping of saying there's nothing wrong with that that flexibility in the word queer which doesn't really ever explain anything it just kind of as you say it's, a, it's an encompassing term but it's also a troubling term it's saying I'm not quite what you expect it's, it's saying I'm sort of beyond those categories that you want to divide people up by it's saying I want to say something more without saying anything in particular um, and yeah, and the idea of strangeness is very much present in the reclaiming of that term. But as a positive, so what if I'm strange? So what if I don't quite fit? So what if the ways in which I have sex and relationships don't match up to these huge norms, which nobody's relationships or identities really match up to, but they are the presumed starting point? Mm-hmm. Um, going off of kind of that that not being believed part um, and just want to wanting to try and kind of transmit that experience as well to to people um what kind of have you found did you find in that process the the biggest struggles or especially with the people you were closest to um again a friend recently told me a story of kind of a a comment that their very very close family member had made to them that to me was just so shocking and kind of incomprehensible that somebody especially being from like a very liberal area and a very kind of open and being a close person the fact that the that comment could even be made Mm -hmm. I I actually don't even know how to describe it because it was just so unfair and bizarre to me Um, and to me I always kind of figured that the default reaction is kind of no reaction or 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 kind of where I was coming from just would be where everybody else would come from and the fact that somebody could care more about the gender sexuality of that person or the person they're seeing more than is the person they're seeing a good person and Mm -hmm. a good partner for them you know I literally don't care (laughs) anything else about them Mm -hmm. apart from are they a good healthy partner for you are you happy is this a good relationship um so to really kind of for myself and also people listening better understand that that process and kind of what other people might grapple from on the other end and as well kind of on the sharing side of yeah absolutely i think one of the things my mum said to me when I came out, and this is something I've heard echoed by other people and is echoed in the research I've done looking at people's negotiations with their own family around their current relationships, um, was it's so hard. 
why are you choosing this? It's so hard. Um, and I think sometimes the worry, the disbelief, the are you sure that's the partner you want comes from not a focus, as you say, on is this the right partner for this person? But this is a lifestyle. <laughs> a lifestyle is a very strange word, but one that keeps getting used. A lifestyle, a life, an identity, which comes with a lot of negative baggage, which comes with an expectation less so now for some some identities and in some countries but certainly globally and certainly for particular identities like if you're trans if you're non-binary and to a degree bisexuality experiences more stigmatization than lesbian and gay identities and I can say more about that as well um because those expectations are going to rub up against your life you're going to get someone telling you you're doing it wrong mm-hmm. you're going to get someone saying your choices are the wrong choices you're making life hard for yourself just don't do it mm-hmm. just fit in instead it's easier disappear into the norm mm-hmm. it, will, it will be a straightforward life and I think my mum did say those things out of love out of not wanting a hard journey for me but not mm-hmm. recognising that for me like for so many other people it wasn't a choice so much as it was just an articulation of where I was what I felt and the attractions I felt and suppressing that wasn't going to be a way forward for me either and I think that's really important that um, recognising people's identities isn't just about saying I don't really care it isn't just about saying well that partner's a good partner for you so I don't really care what label that might associate with what identity you might want to claim actually it does need to be an enthusiastic positive acknowledgement you're bisexual fantastic mm-hmm. I'm so happy you found a way to describe your experience which gives you a sense of identity which associates you with a community of people which gives you a new history which gives you different ways of thinking and moving forward with your relationships because whilst um, acknowledgement whilst hey that's fine carry on is great we're always rubbing up against negative comments we're always rubbing up against the idea that you've done something wrong and that enthusiastic embrace that active acknowledgement is incredibly important for lgbtq people's well-being um, their mental health um, and the health of their relationships as well sometimes that quiet acknowledgement that hey you know doesn't matter to me whatever you want to do in the bedroom is fine is not as um, affirming and supportive as we might perhaps assume it is and sometimes here it might be before moving on to kind of more about representation i just want to touch on a few other things about kind of discrimination Mm. um uh and just kind of these these small things that i think again um people don't assume or, or think about and so those small things that add up but those are so important and mm. prevalent in kind of very simple everyday life inconveniences um, to kind of bring more attention to that. Um, and then going into kind of these these bigger issues, the, the fact that LGBTQ parents face discrimination in adoption. Um, so I don't know if you have any kind of insight into that to elaborate on to really kind of convey the severity behind that and and kind of how certain entities are going out of their way to to discriminate and and take away certain extremely valuable opportunities not only for the parents but for these children. 
Yeah, I mean, there's like three questions there. Um. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we can divide it up. So the first one was about kind of the, the everyday small yeah. things. Yeah, and absolutely. The haircut. So, yeah, I think there's just a wealth of ways in which the texture of our everyday lives changes according to our identities, according to our experiences, and according to um, our anticipation of how we might be seen and how people might respond to us. And that changes from day to day, and it's not unique to being LGBTQ. There are, you know, for any identity you want to pick out of a hat, we could talk about the different ways you might move around cities, um, society, interact with different people. Um, historically, LGBT communities have often been underground. They have often um, developed their own cultures. Um, there's a great book which has just come out recently called um, Fabulosa, uh, the the story of Polari, Britain's secret gay language, which is a, uh, is a whole language which existed um, sort of right up, well, was regularly used by gay men right up until the 70s, really, and it started to die out a little bit as... Um, homosexuality was decriminalized and it was a language a way of speaking to be able to speak to one another in public without being overheard without people necessarily understanding exactly what it was you were talking about um and polari is great because there are a lot of words that you might know um like bevy for drink probably for british listeners rather than american <laughs> uh kazi for toilet um, and cottaging, we know about cottaging as a as um, public spaces in which gay men would meet and have sex. Um, and all of these words relate are come from Polari, um, and we use this part of Polari. So there's this whole kind of culture which built up around not being accepted, not having the expectation of facing discrimination or attack, um, and finding ways to work within that framework, finding ways to communicate as with Polari, finding ways to come together, finding spaces to come together um, across the UK, across the world. There are lots of cities which have particular areas where gay people have congregated, have clubs, have pubs, have spaces. We often use the kind of term safe spaces now, but it's probably, that's quite a modern term for that kind of space. It's gay spaces, queer spaces, spaces of community. Um and it's within these kind of ways, these kind of pockets or enclaves of culture and society where people could find space to be together and find ways to alleviate that worry of, if I go into this shop today, if I accidentally say the wrong thing to the wrong person about who I'm dating, what will that, what consequence will that have? And these spaces, these ways of talking, these ways of thinking and sharing through different types of culture and different types of art and music all kind of contributed to finding a way to deal with that and I think the example you gave of where shall I go to have my hair cut the choices that people made and make about that often relate to shared knowledge so you ask all your dikey friends as I do where shall I get my hair cut which barbers are going to be friendly to me and and they're going to tell me <laughs> and it's that shared experience that community experience and that knowledge which isn't written down and hasn't been written down um which is kind of ephemeral, which is really hard to get a grasp on unless you're part of that community and immersed in it, which has always been there. These communities have existed forever, these ways of being, these ways of relating, but their meanings have changed over time and knowledge about them has changed because, um, as I say, these are kind of invisible histories. They weren't written down because their invisibility is part of how people survived through them. Um, and 
the people who participated in these cultures were often people who weren't being listened to on a mainstream level. The people who wrote the books about what we do in society, the people who broadcast what it means to be British today, what it means to live in the 60s. These weren't necessarily the people who were involved in these communities. You touched on a a part, well, the secret language, um, and another part kind of in in that, again, that constant coming out, that constant reveal through language and either using certain pronouns for a partner or using words like partner that exclude certain pronouns, and that's something I've, again, heard people talk to, kind of going out of your way to avoid those. But I also find it really interesting how in certain languages they lend more than another because there are certain terms that are gender neutral or there are certain terms you know in in English you can say friend but in Spanish when you say friend it's automatically implied if it's a man or a woman and and kind of examining how language either lends itself to or against this kind of um, this kind of process in people's identities and so going off of that and in terms of kind of diving a bit deeper into the the struggles that people face um, and kind of going into parenting, which is an area of your expertise. I'd love to hear a bit about the discrimination that LGBTQ parents face in, in adoption, which I think is an issue that people probably aren't as aware of. And as I mentioned before, kind of the consequences, um, not obviously how unjust it is, but also the consequences in taking away that opportunity for these parents, but also for for the the children. Mm. I mean, I can't really speak to a great deal to that. Um, In my research, I talked to people who built their families in a range of ways. The only people I spoke to who'd uh, built their families through adoption were gay men. Um, And there are a lot of reasons for that. Partly, adoption is a a long process. and for a lot of women I spoke to um, and a lot of trans people I spoke to who weren't necessarily um, gay, lesbian or bisexual. IVF was a preferred option, mm. as was conceiving um, with a friend, palling up. So a lot of parents I spoke to co-parented um, across households. So there were quite a lot of lesbian couples I spoke to who chose to co-parent with gay couples they knew. So, so no necessity of involving any kind of um, review and adoption bodies. Yeah. No necessity of either the cost of going private for IVF or negotiating the right. NHS waiting list for IVF. So um, in 2008, there was new legislation in the UK which said that people who could get IVF on the NHS were infertile heterosexual couples, single women and lesbian couples. And all of those people are allowed to access IVF through the NHS, but with everything on the NHS, is an enormous waiting list. So that's not always possible. Um, and a lot of the lesbian couples I spoke to found that the um, the doctors they encountered at NHS clinics were a little bit uncomfortable with the fact they were two women. Whereas when they went private, they were welcomed with open arms, which is an interesting reflection on what happens when you pay. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, or when you get paid. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but um, those those people I spoke to who adopted found that it was fairly straightforward. What they did find was that um, adoption panels seemed less inclined to allow them to adopt babies and more inclined to direct them towards older children. 
I, I didn't look at the whys and wherefores of that, but it is a common report from um, LGBT people when they've when they've tried to adopt. One reason sometimes people um, don't like to go through the adoption route does come back around to that idea of discrimination or an expectation of discrimination. And really that comes down to how much scrutiny of your life there is in going through the adoption process. You have to open everything up and you have to lay it all out and you have to say, this is our family, this is what it's going to look like. And to do that, there is often um, an emphasis on having a fairly nuclear family, a two-parent model where you're all living in one house and those are the only people involved in parenting. And it's going to be fairly coherent and it's going to be fairly traditional. Um, And for many LGBT people, and I think heterosexual people too, um, that just isn't how they want to arrange their their families. It isn't how they want to arrange their lives. A lot of the people I spoke to parented across multiple households, involved different types of um, friends and exes in the parenting and raising of their kids. In particular, I spoke to um, some people who were bisexual and polyamorous. So polyamorous describing people who have multiple or concurrent um, consensual relationships. And they felt quite clearly that there was never going to be an option that they could um, expose their family to the risk of presenting themselves to any kind of authority. Um, Most, many adoptions in the UK are through local councils rather than any kind of private agencies. So you're you're letting your local authority know that you are living in a non-traditional household and having relationships with multiple adults. The assumption often, um, which happens to... There's kind of two assumptions. On the one hand, a lot of bisexual people report kind of um, stigma that as bisexual people, they are kind of oversexed. They're bisexual because they want to have sex with men and women all the time. <laughs> Um, what a logical conclusion. Uh, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> Not just that they might have attractions to people of more than one gender, but that they want to have sex with everyone all the time, constantly. Um, and then you couple that with assumptions about polyamory, the, the negative assumptions with um, a lack of commitment, with excess sexuality, with um, public sexuality, with too much sex, that you are just need to have it all the time everywhere. And just a complete kind of dismissal of the relationship element of of most and many people's poly relationships, that it's also about building relationships, it's about intimacy, it's about finding different ways of being with people, about fulfilling different kinds of needs than just sex, which isn't to say sex isn't important, but um, is to say that sex is no more important to to a poly uh, person who has poly relationships than it is to a monogamous person. So people who are bisexual, people who are poly, often find it quite... um, Well, they consider risk. I think this is a common thing for LGBTQ people to evaluate risk. If I let someone know right now that I'm not heterosexual, what's going to happen? If I let someone know right now that I have more than one partner, what's going to happen next? Are they going to stop talking to me? Are they going to report me to the authorities on some sort of spurious claim I'm a threat to somebody, to ch- to children, for example? Are they going to start telling people, I can't keep it in my pants, that I'm after everyone, that I'm some sort of predator, 
all of these fears and anxieties which are borne out in lots of the representations we see of people of different sexualities or people who aren't heterosexual are kind of included in the kind of risk assessments that lots of LGBT people are doing. And if you're thinking about building a family, if you're thinking about having children, that risk assessment keeps happening. If I'm living with two of my partners in a household and one of my partner's other partners also visits, we've got four adults in this household and we have sexual and intimate romantic relationships which go far beyond a normal in inverted commas, uh, relationship. We're also not heterosexual. We don't fit that mould either. If we invite in scrutiny to our family as part of this adoption process, not only do we not feel like we're not going to get through this adoption process because we might be told our family would be confusing to a child or we might be told that it would be too disruptive for a child, but we also might actually risk our relationships. We might be continually scrutinised by the police. We might be visited too many times. Social services might be called on our friends' friends' children. We are connected to lots of other poly families. We are connected to lots of other people who have relationships in these different arrangements. Are we exposing everyone to risk by opening ourselves up like this? So the choices about how people build their families were often driven by that risk assessment, but also access. So how can I get access to the types of resources I need to either present myself for adoption which is accompanied often by quite a lot of financial cost of preparing a household for a child who hasn't even been matched with you yet um, can I afford IVF through a private clinic three, four, five cycles maybe not do I know some great guys who want to be fathers who need some eggs and a womb do I have a womb does my partner have a womb? Can we get together? Can we build a family where we don't have to involve anyone else? Um, where we have all the components we need to make a baby. <laughs> and where after having this baby, we get to have a bigger family. We get to have tons of adults involved in raising this kid. We get to show them how you can build families in different ways just across our two or three households because we're all going to be doing it differently. Can we teach our children by coming together in this way that relationships aren't just about romance, they aren't just about sex, but they're also about intimacy, which relates to parenting, which relates to friendship, which relates to adults coming together outside of, of those kind of very narrow ideas of like biogenetic kinship relations to some other kind of relationships. And you touch on this a bit in your research, but I would love to hear your definition of what a family is? That's, I mean, it's a great question. My answer is there isn't one. I think what that is, um, is a lot of ideas that we all agree. You say a family and people pretty much have this little ping in their head of a mother and a father and a child. Um, family has never really meant that. Throughout history, um, families have been this kind of amorphous blob of relationships which move and change according to different needs around work, around child rearing, around maternity, around physically getting through the process of having a child um, and it's relatively recent that we've come to think of family 
quite often as being two parents and some children in a house alone. Um, But in reality, a very tiny number of families with children conform to that model. What most families are is a mess of relationships, of um, responsibilities, of um, commitments and sometimes crummy relationships. but also positive relationships. Sometimes families include children, sometimes they don't. Sometimes families include um, reproductive relationships, like the ones I'm talking about of co-parents and different households coming together to raise children. Sometimes they don't. Um, For LGBTQ people in particular, family has had quite a fraught history as as an idea. Lots of LGBTQ people have been rejected by their parents or families of origin, as we sometimes call them in sociology, and had to find different ways of living, find different networks of support. Um, There's some quite famous, I guess is a strange word, (laughs) well-known research in sociology um, in the 90s looking at families of choice, so the, the way in which LGBTQ people build families around their needs who are the people who can fill that role in my life? Who can provide me with support and comfort and maybe also financial support? Who can I live with in a household? Who can I turn to for advice? Who can I support and pass my knowledge and, and support onto? Who can I love and come together with? And those are families which happen quite apart from any ideas of children, quite apart from any ideas of um, mother and father and and make a kid and somebody goes out to work and someone stays home all of those kind of traditional family ideas are all kind of dismissed in favor of kind of a core thought of family is about support family is about um, comfort family is about um, coming together as individuals with a shared value and care for one another So in its kind of broadest and also in some ways smallest form, I think that's probably what family is. And it's certainly a definition that I have in mind when I'm doing work on families. But what I have found consistently is that every single person you talk to when you ask who's in your family gives you a wildly different definition. Um, I really liked how many people included their pets when I asked them that question. Um... I really liked how many of the women I spoke to included their cats <laughs> in that definition, conforming to quite a few stereotypes about lesbians. <laughs> um, but And some people's families included just the, the handful of people who lived in their house. Some people's families included five, ten different households, friends, exes, uh, co-parents, neighbours. Um, and I think it's wonderful and fascinating and it's why I'm so interested in the way relationships intersect with romance intersect with sexuality, intersect with families, intersect with that idea of coming together and trying to build something together I really loved a few of the definitions kind of you touched on or implicated throughout there and I think I also identify with uh, a lot of different parts throughout that I has happened and who are there without question because they want to be, not because they feel like they have to be kind of that to me is a huge part of what family is and so I know that much more than a lot of other people I know who have more traditional or bigger or kind of family structures to me 
that is kind of where where I draw the line more than any other relation. And I love to include what some people call friends in that and what I consider family. The BBXX podcast, Let's Get Intimate, is produced by Sasha Laurie in Berkeley, California. Dialogue, narrative, and content crafting by Amy Soper. Audio editing, good music vibes, and sound mixing, Daniel Herrera. You can learn more on our website or on our social media at bbxx.world. And if you believe in what we're doing, please do help spread the love by sharing this with someone you care about. Until next time.